It's February 2017 and I'm standing outside South Harrow Tube Station in London. It's raining and coming up on 2pm. To his presidency, Donald Trump has lost one of his closest advisors. From the door of a nearby cafe, I can hear headlines about Russian interference in the US election. And it is this, Russia's resurgence, that has set me searching for the man I'm now waiting to meet. Only... I'm not interested in spy stories and the US. And finally this evening, the expulsion of three members of the Russian diplomatic corps from Ireland. But Russian spy stories and Ireland, that stretch all the way back to the 1960s and right up to the present day. I'll be hearing claims the KGB were once caught in a sting operation on Dublin's south side. Never at any time indulged in activities uh, contrary to your diplomatic status. Well, you know, diplomats are here to collect information. I'm meeting the Irish man at the centre of the KGB hit that shocked the world. Boarded up, the sushi bar in London's Piccadilly, where radioactive material was found, the same deadly substance that killed Alexander Litvinenko. I'm from Donegal. Bizarre stories about Russian submarines using the shallows to link up with KGB agents and tune in to Match of the Day. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's programme. Our main match comes from Ayrson Park. Where but back in London in 2017, I'm in Harrow and a man is approaching. Alexander. His name is Alexander Vasiliev. <laughs> He's a former KGB agent and a graduate of the same spy school as the man who now leads Russia, Vladimir Putin. His, his name in the school was uh, Platov, not Putin, Platov, cover name. In the late 1980s, with the Americans and the Russians trying to broker a nuclear pact, Alexander looked after intelligence and KGB agents in the US. But the spy story he's going to help me explain doesn't feature East Berlin or this grey London tube station, but Dublin, West Cork and Shannon, as well as Donegal. I've been fascinated with the KGB, the security service of the former Soviet Union, since hearing how Limerick man Sean Burke sprung KGB spy George Blake from a British prison in 1966. They got Blake across the channel in a converted van, and then sometime afterwards, Burke crossed Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, and there he met the KGB. The real question I'm asking, though, is... What is the relationship between Russian spies and Ireland? Why would the Soviet Union even bother having a KGB agent or station chief in Dublin? That's a good question, actually. As I, as I, as I said before, uh, let's look at it from the other point of view. And this other Irish point of view begins 90 kilometres off the coast of Northern Ireland. In 1972, a fishing trawler set sail for a sandbank 90 kilometres off the Irish coast. Only this boat wasn't going fishing. It was carrying a secret cargo of Russian weapons, destined for cities that had seen much civil unrest since 1969. Using information from a former Russian spy, KGB historian Christopher Andrew says conflict with Britain in the north prompted Michael O'Reardon, an Irish revolutionary, to seek an arms shipment from Moscow. On November the 6th, 1969, the General Secretary of the Irish Communist Party, Michael O'Reardon, 
a veteran of the international brigades, forwarded a request for Soviet arms from the Marxist IRA leaders Cahill Goulding and Seamus Costello. In his book, The Sword and the Shield, Andrew says requests like these open new fronts for the Soviet Union, who are in an ongoing struggle with Western superpowers known as the Cold War. And this was a chance to take the fight to Britain indirectly through the IRA and O'Reardon, now telling them the North was on a knife edge. He claimed that there was now a real possibility of civil war in Northern Ireland between the two communities and of serious clashes between British troops and the Catholics. Hence the IRA's appeal for arms. Before going ahead with an arms shipment, it was essential to verify O'Reardon's ability to guarantee the necessary conspiracy in shipping the weapons and preserve the secret of their source of supply. But it wasn't until August 1972 that the order was given for the secret service arm of the KGB to deliver a considerable cache of weapons. Two machine guns, 70 automatic rifles, 10 Volta pistols, 41,600 cartridges were transported by a Soviet intelligence gathering vessel, on this occasion the Reductor. And in the event the British did come along, the KGB had gone to extreme lengths to cover their tracks. The Volta pistols were lubricated with West German oil. The packaging was purchased abroad by KGB residences and it was specified that the marker boy should be Finnish or Japanese. But when the Russians did reach the drop-off point, a physical exchange had been deemed too risky, which is why the plan was codenamed Operation Splash. On this occasion, the arms, in waterproof wrapping, were submerged to a depth of about 40 metres on the Stanton sandbank, 90 kilometres from the coast of Northern Ireland, and attached to a marker boy of the kind used to indicate the presence of fishing nets below the surface. A few hours after the arms had been deposited on the sandbank, they were retrieved by a fishing vessel belonging to the Irish Friends, whose crew were unaware of their contents. If a Russian arms scandal is the obvious starting point to this relationship between Ireland and the KGB, then the most unlikely spy scandal was about to follow behind. Because by 1983, the former head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, had become the leader of the Soviet Union and hostilities with Western powers were intensifying. Uh, London expelled a, no a number of Soviet diplomats and one journalist. Uh, From London to Paris to Iran, governments were expelling Russian citizens suspected of spying. But one expulsion was to play out, not against the backdrop of a foggy street in Eastern Europe. I'm from RT Radio 1. I'm just doing a piece out here this morning. I'm working on a documentary but here, about uh, Russian, Russian spies in Dublin. In this South Dublin suburb, this shopping centre here that we're looking at, the Lorgan Shopping Centre, was used as a cover by Soviet spies to pass information about the US military. The Lorgan Shopping Centre, between UCD and Donnybrook, is the most random location for a spy scandal. But in 1983, Gareth Fitzgerald's government discovered a Russian spy ring using Ireland as a base to steal secrets about the US military. <laughs> it's, it's piquing my uh, curiosity now. I'd get Gareth's book and have a little read, you know. But, uh... And here, in West Cork, the discovery was being followed by a solicitor more used to dealing with circuit courts than cases of Russian espionage. Hi. Hello, Jim. Good. Yeah. How are you? My name. Nice to meet you. In 1983, Jim O'Keefe was Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, and it was his job 
to protect Ireland from the murky world of foreign intelligence agents who were now starting to catch his attention. There was also a suggestion at the time that radio traffic from Ireland uh, wouldn't have been as closely monitored and that it might have been used as a, a base for sending these coded messages back to Moscow. Taoiseach Gareth Fitzgerald told O'Keefe that the people responsible for sending these coded messages back to Moscow were KGB agents working as diplomats in the Soviet embassy in Rakhgar, Dublin, and that Irish intelligence officials had tricked them into handing over information in, of all places, Stilorgan Shopping Centre. These people were involved in spying activities, and the people involved were two of the diplomats in the Soviet embassy and the wife of one of them. According to one press report, up to 1983, some of these diplomats weren't known for their shopping trips to Stilorgan, but as popular drinkers in pubs around Temple Bar. A spy needs to be liked. That's his you know, basic, basic professional skill. Because if you are not liked, you are, you are a bad spy. And our former KGB agent, Alexander Vasiliev, says good social skills would have been preached to Russian spies in the Soviet embassy in Rakhgar where Russian spies would have been encouraged to flatter their hosts with knowledge of Irish culture. Uh, James Joyce, George Bernard Shaw, actually, uh, Oscar Wilde was extremely popular, extremely popular. There were TV plays based on Oscar Wilde's plays, on the Soviet TV. But the Irish government and O'Keefe were well aware of the capabilities of the KGB and the lengths they would go to in their fight against their enemies. We were soldiers. We didn't wear uniforms, never. But uh, we were soldiers, right? And uh, uh, we were constantly in some state of a secret war. And in 1983, the Soviet embassy in Ireland had become an information hub in this secret war between the Russians and the US and Britain. O'Keefe was given an unprecedented order by Taoiseach Gareth Fitzgerald to expel the three diplomats at the centre of the scandal. And you know, there were my writing instructions from Gareth. It was a, a forced, because it had never happened before, certainly to me, but in fact it had never happened before in the, in the history of the country. As the news leaked out, RT raced to interview one of the accused Russian diplomats. Had you any contact, say, with um, political parties in this country? You know, due to my job, I didn't have very much contact with political parties because consular... This is Viktor Lipasov, and he denied all allegations of spying, along with his wife and the first secretary of the embassy. But my, my main business was issuing visas, that's all. The Irish government didn't buy that visa story either. And Jim O'Keefe was set for a showdown with embassy secretary Mikhail Sobolev, for the first time, he reveals details of an intense exchange. When he arrived at the headquarters of the Department of Foreign Affairs, he was brought up to my office, and uh, where the confrontation took place, he was not best pleased with the news I was delivering, and that he was very tough. And I would have used the expressions that the, these three people 
were involved in activities that were unacceptable and not in accordance with international standards expected of diplomatic staff. He would have known full well that that was a euphemism for spying. I also was to make it clear that the wife was not being expelled merely because she was a wife. She was directly uh, mentioned as also having been involved in unacceptable activities. There was subsequently the story about Donegal. The story from Donegal alleges that Mr and Mrs Lipasov were going there for meetings with the IRA and also to transmit intelligence cables to Soviet submarines. An independent news and media reported that the submarines weren't there to counter some NATO strategy, but to use the proximity to England. Good afternoon and welcome to this week's programme, which has the salty flavour of the northeast about it. Country where the to tune in to Match of the Day. It's completely untrue. You won't be surprised to hear that the Dublin-based Soviet diplomats that Jim O'Keefe was in the process of expelling from this country strongly denied any such covert activities off the coast of Donegal. And they alleged that she travelled to Belfast and to northern uh, England apart. But by now, Jim O'Keefe's expulsion had been rubber-stamped. And uh, I was merely delivering a message on behalf of the government of Ireland that these three people had to leave the country. Just that, that was it. Get him out. Before boarding his flight home, Mr Lipasov told Michael Walsh about his feelings on being expelled. I was expelled, you know, without any grounds. And I didn't violate the laws of this country. I think it was a political decision and nothing else behind that. And the airport where the Russian spies were expelled is where the next chapter in the story of Irish and Russian spy links starts. Two years later, in 1985, when Russian planes were using Shannon as a stopover for flights to and from Cuba, their communist ally, then led by Fidel Castro. But there was a young Dublin socialist who was becoming a regular face on the return leg to Moscow. I'd get on in, in Shannon and like I had to fight my way through a big cloud of uh, cigar smoke. And this is Ken McHugh. You know, they'd, they'd be all drinking uh, rum out of the bottle and that, you know, and trying to take off was impossible because they were all well-oiled, you know. He's from a Protestant trade union background. And in 1985, he was a member of the Irish Workers' Party, helping organise an event in Moscow. In 1985, it was uh, International Youth Year and it was the... Um, the World Festival of Youth and Students was in Moscow. Like, so I was on the preparatory committee. Only there was a bigger focus than the festival. The Workers' Party, which had grown out of a split in the IRA in 1969, wanted to make Ireland a communist state of social and economic fairness. And so did Michael O'Reardon. You remember, the man at the centre of that arms drop bound for the IRA in 1972. He was still with the Communist Party of Ireland and competing with Ken to build alliances with the Soviet Union. Well, I remember Sean Garland saying to me, he was my boss, he was the General Secretary and he was my boss, so he, he would have told me, you know, go over and keep an eye on the, what the CP were doing, the Communist Party were doing. I was there to basically uh, interrupt a lot of their activity. These relationships led to spy games in Dublin in the 80s, 
and got Ken past security checks in Moscow that gave him a bird's eye view of the Soviet military machine. Uh, so they brought me into one of the guys from the, the army, brought me into uh, a map room. I got a look at uh, some of the maps that, that they took out in you know, Europe. They did some like ship markings, like ship routes between Faroes, for example, and here, you know, monitoring ship movements uh, of uh, NATO. And so they were only concerned about that part of, you know, like off the west coast, you know, beyond Rockall, between Rockall and, and the Faroes. Beyond Rockall and the northwest coast of Ireland, it looked like a Cold War chess match was playing out between the Russians and Western NATO powers. But Ken was there to get support to advance the Workers' Party at home, not to crack NATO defence systems. And he began meeting KGB agents with a deep understanding of Ireland. Some of the agents were, were quite young and I found them really knowledgeable about the, the situation here. Like I'd met CIA agents, agents of Central Intelligence Agency in America who hadn't a bleeding clue what was going on in Europe. And Russian agents like these were ending up in the streets of Ireland. But if they were going to use Ireland to steal international secrets, they had to prove first that they could shake off their own spies on the streets of Moscow. And as former KGB agent Alexander Vasiliev explains, this is the kind of Soviet-style pursuit you needed to master before you even earned a spy career in Dublin. Normally, if they follow you, you will be followed by 10 to 20 people in uh, three or four cars. And people actually changing their appearance, their, you know, changing their coats, using wigs, glasses. The, the most difficult thing is women, because women can change their appearance very easily and very fast. And if you are traveling by the tube, they will be in the next coach, looking through the window but very subtly. So the only way to detect them is uh, unnatural behavior uh, when uh, they think they lost you. And in, in that situation, you, you should look very attentively at the people on the street, what they are doing, how they behave. If they walk too fast, if they run, if they talk to walkie-talkies into their sleeve, something like that. If there is some commotion, unusual, that's it. Since the Lorgan in 1983, Irish intelligence officials knew Russian spies with this kind of training were using Ireland as a base. And as Ken McHugh remembers, even spies weren't exempt from Ireland's hospitality. Vladimir Minderov was the, um, the diplomat. And he'd say to me, listen, let's go over. And we'd meet, we used to meet in a Pembroke Inn. And when I'd walk in, he had my vodka and orange on the table. Stolly, you know, Stolly and I. I was member, we were doing the fundraiser, I think, for the Workers' Party in, in town and uh, in Cable Street. And I invited him over and he, he lost his way. And uh, the special branch car who was, who was uh, uh, tailing him, he stopped the car, um, knocked on their window, rolled it down. Listen, I'm, I'm looking for the the pub in Cable Street, can you help me? Yeah, no problem, you know where it is, you follow us. So he drove in on his BMW behind there, whatever it was, <laughs> the car where they were driving. So, and came in, they came in then and had a beer with us, you know. 
that was the kind of relationship at the time. Like they, we all knew what was going on. He would have known he was a senior diplomat, and you know, like obviously. But uh, it was very casual, you know. It was amazing. Outside of these pub meetings, Irish officials also knew political alliances with the Soviet Union were growing stronger. In the late 1980s, the Workers' Party were winning more seats in the Dáil in Dublin. And in Moscow, Ken McHugh was now meeting Russian-Irish speakers in hotel lobbies. I got a call one, mar- one, one night and he, uh, you want it downstairs, I'll come down the lift. And this guy put his hand out and said, Conor's Tartu, he's from uh, Uzbekistan. Oh, I was going, I couldn't believe this, this guy speaks Irish. But uh, it turned out that uh, he was learning Irish in the Moscow University. He had an Irish department uh, section there. But in 1991, the fortunes of this relationship began changing. The Soviet Union was breaking up, and a minor consequence of that took the form of a document leaked from Moscow that brought a major focus on Irish links with the KGB. And the man responsible for that leak was a Russian dissident who we tracked down to this house in Cambridge, England. Yeah, how do you know that? I read it somewhere, in 1991, Vladimir Bukovsky was brought out of exile by Boris Yeltsin, who was then on his way to taking over from President Gorbachev. And back in Moscow, Hello. Mr. Bukovsky, yeah, Bukovsky discovered details of a £1 million grant request from the Workers' Party of Ireland to the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Significantly, the document had been vetted by the Communist Party's security service the KGB, and had purportedly been signed by two Irish politicians. Tell me, what happens to these characters, these Garland and the Rossa? Sean Garland, the General Secretary of the Workers' Party, and Pruntius de Rossa, then a TD for Dublin North West. Among these documents, special file, marked special file, always was connected to so-called liberation movements. Be that in Nicaragua or in uh, Chile or whatever. Uh, but the Irish were known to be kind of hostile to British, and that would be the, the angle they would look at and uh, try to find a way of exploiting it. Mr. Bukowski leaked the file to a journalist before it got to the Irish media. And it finally found its way to Irish Independent. I don't know how. I mean, so, a couple of years later, it became a scandal. The Irish Independent published it. For journalists looking for links between the Workers' Party and the KGB, this file was a smoking gun. It was probably the first uh, document that showed a real link between the Workers' Party and the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Seamus Martin was a journalist for the Irish Times in Moscow. Everyone knew that they they had relations, etc. But it was the first written document, and of course, a million pounds. You know, we're talking about the nineteen eighties. This was a hell of a lot of money. That detail of the money request that Seamus Martin mentions used the term special activities, and writing in the Sunday Independent, Eamon Dunphy alleged links between Pruntius de Rossa and activities carried out by the organisation that spawned the Workers' Party, the official IRA. Both Sean Garland and Pruncheus de Rossa vehemently denied these links 
and claimed the signatures were forgeries. And in 1992, Mr. De Rossa sued the Sunday Independent for libel. But it was 1997 before the case got to court, and the man I'm with today, Vladimir Bukowski, was flown into Dublin to give evidence. But then the lawyers for the Independent called me uh, and said, is that your document? I said, yeah, it's my document, I brought it. Uh, would you be willing to testify? And I said, yeah, sure, it's my document. The trial caught the attention of an Irish public, more used to seeing politicians shaking hands on the lawn of the White House than trying to shake down the Kremlin. Can you remember what questions the judge or any of the questions that the judge asked you that day in relation to the documentation that you retrieved? Well, they were keen to know the uh, circumstances under which I saw them. Uh, how did I see them? Did anyone else see them? You know, usual questions concerning the authenticity of documents, so I confirmed to them everything. The upshot of it all was Mr. De Rossa won the case and the Workers' Party said the grant was to be used to build a cultural centre. Uh, we, we obviously, from time to time, we, stay, we say sort of unkind things about each other. And that's no bad thing, uh, providing it's done within the laws of libel. <laughs> but you might say, the whole episode failed the first lesson of spycraft. Don't draw attention to yourself. By then, Pruncius de Rossa had long left the Workers' Party to form Democratic Left, and these Irish-Russian alliances, well, now they're just tales from a Soviet time. Just like Ken McHugh's time in Moscow during the late 1980s. Yeah, I remember we landed and uh, <laughs> I was looking out, I looked out the window and I saw this guy on a bicycle coming over, right? And uh, the captain came down. He used to have these big hats, like big frying pans on their heads. He got onto the bicycle and cycled into the terminal. I was thinking, oh Jesus, this is incredible. Throughout the 1990s, Russian and KGB activity in Ireland went quiet. The Soviet Union disbanded in 1991 and the KGB got a new name, the FSB. Mind you, the old ties never really went away, as you can hear in this episode of Tonight with Vincent Brown from 2002. Uh, we have with us the new Russian ambassador to Ireland, Vladimir, are you enjoying your stay in Ireland? We're having a good time. Do you still have KGB operatives in the uh, Russian embassy here? Well, no. None? No. When did that stop? It's not until 2006 that the next chapter in the story of Ireland and the KGB starts. And this time, it's an accidental one. When an Irishman finds himself at the centre of one of the world's best-known poisoning cases, here, in a London hotel... Do you still have piano here? Yes, he's in the other side of the country. The 1st of November 2006. Alexander Litvinenko caught on CCTV on his way to a meeting with two former Russian spies at the upmarket Millennium Hotel in central London. In 2006, former KGB spy Alexander Litvinenko went to a meeting in London's Millennium Hotel. It was perhaps the most audacious murder on British soil ever. During that meeting, Radioactive material was dropped into his tea. This was not some random killing. This was a killing with a very clear purpose and that it was a killing with some state involved. The attack shocked the world. And the piano player in the bar that day was Dubliner Derek Conlon, who was about to become 
unwittingly involved in a notorious murder by Russian spies. So I got the 73 bus, went, um, walked down to the hotel, went in, set up, read me Irish Independent. And not long after Litvinenko had radioactive material dropped in his cup of tea, that very same cup was collected by hotel staff, put in a dishwasher that failed to rinse away all the poison. And the next man to drink from it was Derek Conlon. Had a cup of coffee. There was always a cappuccino. Um, speak to the bar staff. Sat down, played. No problems, everything's fine. As Derek was getting into his evening session, the poison was taking hold. And within days, Alexander Litvinenko was seriously ill and talking to police. He was saying that he was uh, a former member of the Russian intelligence agency and that he believed he had been poisoned by uh, some of his former colleagues. Derek heard on the news there had been a poisoning in the hotel. And then it came out that it was this man called Alexander Litvinenko. And just to be sure, he went to hospital. But he couldn't believe what the doctors were telling him. He said, well, you'll have some radiation there, a little bit high, you know. And I said, well, I don't know how that could be. I said, I wasn't actually there because the event happened um, at half past four in the afternoon. I was there an hour later. The police explained to Conlon that he drank from the same cup as Litvinenko and that the cup had been spiked by a radioactive material called polonium-210. OK, I drank from the, uh, the, the coffee cup, which was um, contaminated. And then it turns out it's all over my clothes, all over the piano. People would, would come to the bar, but it wasn't for the music, it was out of curiosity because people wanted to see, oh, that's the fellow, he's, you know, he glows in the dark, that fellow, he, you know. It was that kind of a um, freak show kind of thing, you know. By now, investigators were finding radioactive material right across the city. Boarded up the sushi bar in London's Piccadilly, where radioactive material was found. Police have finished their search of the premises. but obviously The trail went from a sushi bar used by the attackers to Arsenal's football stadium and right into Derek Conlon's bedroom, where government scientists were now paying visits. They pulled up uh, one morning in a, in a van with the brown coats and, and boxes and um, <laughs> came upstairs and I don't think that Geiger can, whatever they, 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 anyway, they take out, they're like a, a weapon, um, they said, so what did you wear? Uh, what did you carry? So I showed them, I, I had a silver case with a, I carried a microphone and a drum machine and bits and pieces in it. And I said, this is the case. Man. So they put it on the case and it starts leaping away. And I said, oh, and I said, this is the, cl- the clothes I wore. And that starts clicking away as well. <laughs> I said, well, it's, it's here now. So, you know, it's, it's actually where I'm, where I'm living. And they said, I said, um, well, we have to take the case away. And I said, OK. I said, what about the clothes? And they said, we'll just put it in the dry cleaners. It'll be fine. You know? <laughs> oh, OK, yeah, yeah. What about me? Do I just go to the dry cleaners as well? And three weeks after it all started, Litvinenko was dead. Derek was terrified. And doctors said all he could hope for was that he'd sweat out the poison. But as a witness to the crime, Derek was now starting to worry that he too might be a target for Russian spies. I don't know if, if uh, I mean, I'm nobody, but do they want me talking about stuff? You know, is it going to be the, the old umbrella, the poison dart or whatever, you know, which way am I going to go? No longer needed by the police, he decided to get out of the country. Um, and then I got a call from a friend who said that he was looking for somebody to go to Barbados um, to play. 
at a club out there for six weeks. Although this could be my last job, I'll take it. Leaving behind experts like our former KGB agent, Alexander Vasiliev, to speculate over the attack. It really doesn't sound like it was done by someone from, uh, from Russian special services. On the other hand, I don't know what kind of people they recruit right now. Because in the Soviet Union it was creme de la creme. And Derek was sat on a flight wondering if his body could stand up to radiation that forced police to bury in copper the microphone stand he was using that night. So I'm on the Virgin uh, Jumbo Jet sitting at the airport going, I hope I make it to even get there, you know. And nearly ten years after wandering down to play piano in a London hotel, Derek heard news of a public inquiry linking the attack with a one-time member of the KGB and now the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And the inquiry has found that his murder was an operation of the Russian security service, the FSB. And the inquiry goes on to say the killing was probably approved by President Putin as well as the then director of the FSB. Um, it, it took a while to sink in. I'm still in kind of shock over that one. I think, what the hell happened there, you know? The next and latest chapter in the story of Ireland and Russian spies involves two Irish people who ended up at the centre of one of the biggest spy rings uncovered in recent times. Their story even inspired a hit US TV series. Super secret identities, no one has any idea who they are. But the real life script started in Rome in 2010 when a man using the name Una Doherty checked in for a flight to Russia. He didn't know then that he was being watched by U.S. authorities for alleged spying. Something out of the Cold War. The Justice Department said today 10 people have been arrested on charges of spying for Russia. Or that the real Union Doherty from Karen Dunne in Donegal would soon be dragged into an international spy scandal. And the first the Karen Dunne man heard about it was in the summer of 2014 when a guard called to his workplace to ask him a question. And he said to me, have you heard the news this morning? As news of the arrests of 11 alleged Russian agents emerged. Well, look, I listened to the news going to work, but I didn't think there was anything relevant to me in it. And he said there has been um, a Russian or an American spy who was basically trading secrets with Russia. And I says, yeah, and what's that got to do with me? Now, the plot thickened when it was reported that one of the people arrested in the United States is alleged to have travelled on a forged Irish passport. Our Washington correspondent, Richard Downs, joins me now. Richard, you really couldn't make this one up. Uh, it seems no, the Cold couldn't. War lives on. The Garda started telling Union the US government had uncovered a Russian spy ring and that some of the spies were using stolen identities to gather intelligence. And, and they proceeded then to start asking me questions. That, that's how it started off that morning. As the morning went on, Doherty tried to make sense of his family's link with the Russian spy ring. I never lost a passport. I'd never been out of my possession, so... He told the guard he'd never lost his passport. And the only connection he had with Russia was a holiday to Moscow in 2005. And I said, look, I says, my wife Maureen has basically... All records of wherever we were, when we were there, when we flew. As is, we, we can sort this, we can go up to the uh, home and we can sort this out. As the guards were sorting through his documents in Donegal, 
More was revealed about the gang who stole his identity. Now, we know that, that Richard Murphy, one of the, the, the people uh, allegedly travelling on this, this Irish passport, uh, he lived the life in a place called Montclair in New Jersey with uh, the perfect That's family right. and uh, worries about his children going to, going to school. Among them was a man called Richard Murphy, and it was Murphy who travelled through Rome on Doherty's passport months earlier. They were given identities which were false, including one, Richard Murphy, who we mentioned earlier, who allegedly travelled on a uh, false Irish transit passport uh, via Rome on its way to Russia. Eunan Doherty told the authorities that before he went to Russia, his wife Maureen went to the Russian embassy in Dublin to get entry visas. And Gardy discovered that in 2005, a person in the Russian embassy had sent the Doherty's passport details to Russia, including those of an Irish woman working with the charity from Russia with love. I, I do believe that I was an innocent victim and it was just basically used because it fitted the criteria that they needed. I would say that's the only reason. And so it seems... 27 years after that unprecedented action by Jim O'Keefe in 1983, that Russian intelligence officers were still working in Dublin. And in 2010, the Irish government expelled a Russian diplomat. You may have missed it yesterday amid all of the election frenzy, but the government has ordered the expulsion of a Russian diplomat. The move follows a Garda investigation into the forgery of Irish passports. So, by now, you're probably wondering about a few things. Like these Irish people who tangled or tangoed with the KGB. What happened to them? Well, after expelling the diplomats in 1983, Jim O'Keefe was nicknamed the Skibbereen Eagle in a homage to a local paper once celebrated for reporting on Russian affairs. People started drawing parallels that here was the skipping needed giving the boot to the Russians. Ken McHugh, he's now a respected anti-racism campaigner. And in 2002, he would share an intimate moment with his hero, the last president of the old Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, well, it was in City Hall and uh, he came over and he got the freedom of the city and uh, I was out there as a guest and... I, uh, I said, listen, I just always wanted to do one thing, and I gave him a big kiss on his, uh, the map of Africa on his head. <laughs> no, serious, yeah, of course. As for Derek Conlon, he's woken every morning since the attack to play piano on cruise ships all over the world. It's a story, it's a, a real thing, it's, it's life. Um, and here we are. And as for that hit TV series, inspired by the Doherty's, it's called The Americans, about an ordinary married couple who are secretly Russian spies. Well, they look like us. They speak better English than we do. We are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. We have been for a very long time. Only the main characters in The Americans are called the Jennings and not the Dohertys. I love that show. It's fantastic. I mean, this is a great idea. Oh, our former KGB agent, Alexander Vasiliev, is a big fan. And after leaving the agency, he moved to live in London. But what about links between Russian spying and Ireland now? Well, then, like now, it's still happening. 7.41, there's a photo in the newspapers this morning of the Russian ambassador here visiting Oris and Uchtaron, but in Britain, 
Russia's and the most recent report is not on land or sea, but from our skies in 2014. Two Russian bomber planes flew close to UK airspace, disrupting civil aviation on Wednesday. The planes went past our west coast too. The so, from spy rings in Stillorgan to stolen identities in Donegal, and most recently, Russian fighter jets using our airspace to gather intelligence on NATO. You could say that at worst, this story is just another show of Russian nationalism. And at best, a Hollywood movie script. And who knows what the next chapter will be with Russian spies in Ireland. And when it will take place. I know I'm asking you to speculate. Why do you think they do this? Well, there are two reasons. One is, uh, if you like, a political reason, uh, publicity. We're, we're there. We, 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 we're showing you what we can do.